Hi, I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Monica Banky. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. Today, we're joined by Vice President and Principal Analyst Beth Kaplow and Principal Analyst Barbara Winters to discuss how B2B buying has changed and whether the dramatic changes seen during the pandemic are here to stay. Welcome both. It's great to be here. Thanks, Jen. Thank you for having us. So the insights that you'll be sharing with us today are from the B2B buying study that we conduct. Can you just share a little bit how long have we been doing this study? Who's being surveyed so we can ground the audience in who the who and the what are we talking about today? Sure. So we've been doing this study. It's a biannual study we've been doing since 2015. And it's a global survey of almost a thousand respondents between functional leaders and professionals in B2B organizations across more than 15 industries. All the respondents have made purchases within the last 180 days before the survey. And those purchases could be for products or services or solutions, but they needed to be significant or business critical with a minimum cost of $1,000. Hey, Beth, take us on a little kind of historical adventure on why do we start doing it? Like, what's the point of doing the buyer survey? What do we get out of it? What do companies get out of it? Like, what was the impetus, the trigger to do it? Yeah, we started doing this in 2015 because we started realizing that understanding the buyer behavior was very important to be able to engage them successfully in all of your marketing and sales efforts. So we started conducting this survey to start understanding how buying behavior was was changing and how, how people were acting, what they wanted, who they wanted to interact with, where they're going for information, what sort of content they like to see. And we found that this, this um, information was so valuable to our clients because it's actually very hard to get that information themselves without a lot of um, effort in creating a survey or something. So how much granularity can you get into? I'm I'm one of those people that I'm not a huge fan of averages. I always say that the average temperature in North America annually is 58.4 degrees. And that is absolutely of no value to me when I'm trying to get dressed in Texas in August. What's your ability to inspect the buyer study information in a way that is granular enough that somebody can actually take action on it? Because I think that if it's all averages, it's kind of cocktail party information. You can't, interesting, but you can't really do anything with it. So with this survey every year, we do look at trends across all respondents, but we also spend a lot of time analyzing this data, specifically a couple of ways. We analyze it by different vertical industries and how they answer so that we can help our clients, for instance, if a client is in financial services or a client is in retail, we can break down the data to just those respondents and give them specific answers about how their buyers are behaving. We also break it down by different personas within those buyer groups. So while we distribute the the survey pretty evenly among CXOs, VP director levels, manager levels, We also track and analyze that data specifically for, for instance, CEOs or CFOs or different roles. We have a variety of IT roles that we also pull out specific reports for so we can help our clients really understand who their persona is, 
and hopefully what industry they're in and looking at those things together, they can get much more specific information. And is there a lot of variation between those different combinations? Do you find them all kind of similar or are you like, oh, this is way different than, than this other one? I would say that over the years, um, I've looked at a lot of these different, we, we create these buying insight reports and we have, as Barbara said, by vertical industry, by region, by functional area, by buyer roles. Um, there's a lot of difference. And as you start sort of getting more involved in them, you can see like IT people are pretty different from high level executives and even executives themselves vary a lot in how they behave. So you can get some very detailed and granular information that really helps you address your specific, you know, audience or target buyer that you're going after. I'd say one of the biggest differences we see is in the business drivers. We ask buyers what's behind their purchase. And we see a difference um, where some are much more focused on efficiency type drivers and some are focused on profitability and some um, like IT buyers tend to be focused on keeping things running smoothly and um, integrating things across their organization. So yes, we do see differences. So taking a step back and when we're looking at, you know, the data all in, what are you seeing in terms of um, the buyers or buying groups? Are Is that changing? Has that morphed? And are, you know, what are the impacts of the pandemic to, to the number of people involved in a purchase decision? Yeah, so this is a question that everyone is asking about and sort of also sort of experiencing it themselves. Um, we've seen the number of participants and buying groups going up pretty gradually over time and, and increasing a little bit more during the pandemic. Um, and we also, so nowadays we can say that um, about 60% of purchases have four or more people involved versus just 47% in 2017. So you can see how it's sort of tracking up. We also track something called buying scenarios where we sort of say there's three buying scenarios. One is very simple. It's a small deal. It's only a couple of people involved. One sort of a middle-level med-sized deal. It crosses a couple of departments and one is really big and complex where there's a lot of departments and there's executive oversight involved. So that's pretty complex. Um, we track those types of deals and that has actually changed dramatically since 2015. It's almost reversed. In 2015, we had a hard time finding committee scenarios, those really big complex scenarios. There was about 18% of them. This year, there was only 18% of independent scenarios where there's only one or two people involved. It has really changed dramatically in a fairly short period of time. And I think there's a few reasons for that. One is it's also, what's also been happening is the percent of technology purchases has gone up. So it used to be about 63%. Now it's like 80% of all purchases. That by itself makes the buying group bigger because you've got all of a sudden all these technical IT people involved. In addition, the, the pandemic really sort of made these purchases more critical. So more people were getting involved and there was definitely a lot more oversight because of that. 
So Beth, do you think this is going to be like a bungee cord where like everybody came off from the pandemic, it's stretched and now it's going to like come back again. What uh, you had a crystal ball. What do you think? And when will we know? <laughs> that is the million dollar question. Um, I think it's definitely going to spring back a little because in the pandemic, everyone was working from home and not traveling. So there was more people available to participate. And in addition, those purchases were probably very, very critical at a very you know, difficult time. So there was a lot more scrutiny on these purchases. So I think that's going to relax a little bit. However, there's still a lot of, you know, sort of big market forces that are causing a lot of economic uncertainty. And so it might not spring back to what it was before where, you know, there was, you know, just fewer people involved and less oversight. So we'll probably test this out next year and then the following year and see what how the trend is happening. So you talked a little bit about, you know, the difference between independent and committee. And I'm curious, um, the committees, the number of the number of purchases made by committee has increased, right? The, in terms of the, them and the committees have increased and they've taken longer. The ones that have been, you know, independent, only a couple of people short short cycles, did they expand as well or did they stay kind of steady state? And I guess that what's behind the question is, to your point of some of these decisions were higher risk, they were really important, people were making, you know, important investments, but there were still ones that were just like ongoing purchases and they didn't change or did everything change? I think it's a little bit of both I, because we saw some things in the day that were like, hmm, how do we make sense of that? Um, I think there were purchases that they had to make and they were smaller, um, but, you know, this is just to keep the business going kind of purchases um, and they could then technology or non-technology purchases. But even in those independent purchases, this is something that Barbara and I were um, had a lot of discussion about. They might say, oh, there's really only one or two people involved. But on the other hand, when you ask them how many departments were involved, all of a sudden there'd be a lot of departments involved. So they might think that there's not as many people involved in the sort of nitty gritty of deciding on the purchase. But then there's other people who get involved to sort of square away the T's and C's and make sure the pricing's okay. So that so maybe there's a procurement person or maybe you know there's the finance person or something. So there are sort of in general, the purchase process is getting, you know, it's getting a little bit more bureaucratic. There's more, you know, players involved, even if they're not involved in the decision itself. Oh, interesting. Hey, Barbara, you talked a little bit about the different personas that we looked at. Mm -hmm. um, as you see the committees, the number of people involved, now that's the number of departments involved. Have you started to see a mix in who the players or the actors are? And, you know, what does that look like? Yeah, yeah, we sure have. So as, as Beth mentioned, there's lots of people involved. And we have seen um, some of the, it's, it's very cross-functional, the players that are involved in, in buying groups. And we've seen finance, IT, and C-suite ex executives all um, become real important in those buyer groups. So 
Beth, I know you did a lot of analysis specifically on those C-suite executives and finance buyers. Yeah. So we took a look at these sort of more cross-functional roles to see how their roles had changed over time and during the pandemic. And we looked first at finance because that's sort of a role that you consider part of purchase decision. They had increased their role as decision makers during the pandemic. So about half the time they're playing decision maker role where it used to be only a third of the time. Um, And the other time they might be playing kind of an influencer or ratifier role. Um, So that increased over the pandemic. We looked at IT as decision makers and that their IT as decision makers, this is also what they are self-reporting. They consider themselves decision makers almost two thirds of the time because they kind of consider themselves having the expertise and also playing kind of a cross-functional and cross-business role to be like, this is what we need for the business kind of thing. So that was actually fairly steady over the pandemic, but it's still pretty high and especially has gone up with the increase of technology purchases. Then we looked at executives. That has gone up probably the most during the pandemic where they are playing a much stronger role as decision makers. And in past years, they were kind of playing like ratifier, influencer roles, like sort of, you know, letting, um, you know, their groups or or people sort of make some decisions. But during the pandemic, they they got very much more involved and uh, now play decision-making role 75% of the time, which is far more than any other sort of group of buyers. So they're, they're highly involved and they tend to get involved when, you know, the deal price is higher, of course, or where it's a bigger, more important deal. So this sets up a huge conundrum, if you will, or challenge, maybe that's a better word. If you're in marketing, say you're the VP of demand creation or even a CMO, and you know it used to be, hey, I could just Beth talk to you and I could get my deal done, but now it's finance and procurement and executives that are hard to reach, and you know it, it suddenly becomes a lot more challenging. So, what's a marketer to do? It is definitely more challenging. We've talked about that a lot, and with. Um, you know, I think one of the things that we've talked about with ratif- those ratifier roles that you th- kind of think of coming in at the end of the purchase, we we sort of recommend if you're if you're doing sales that you sort of engage them early in the process so they know what's coming and that they're going to be on your side and not sort of pushing back at the last minute. With executives, what we really what the data that we've seen with executives is they engage pretty pretty early in the process and they're very engaged. They stay engaged throughout the process and they are doing, you know, they're not only delegating, they're doing their own research and doing their own due diligence. So you really need to make sure that you have built awareness for those target executives that you think are going to be part of your purchase process. And, you know, so that means, you know, advertising, thought leadership, things like that, um, finding out where they go. Executives are pretty savvy purchases and they look for third party information Um, farther in the purchase process. They will definitely want to engage with vendors. But the beginning, they're sort of looking for one to many or sort of where they can go and do their own research without getting embroiled in some vendor sponsored things. That was going to be my question. Like when we think about the interactions that some of these players are are having, is it, it 
are we, is it more like just the salesperson interacting with the executive or is there more of a self-guided experience and expectation for, um, for that executive level? Because that I'm assuming perhaps to Monica's point is a, is a shift in creating valuable content for that level, understanding what is an executive looking for as part of this buying process and decision-making process, which would obviously be different than a director or manager who's, you know, maybe on, you know, the knobs and dials of whatever that tool is. Yeah. Um, that's a really good point. I think, um, and we can talk about this a little bit even more broadly because we've got sort of these sort of types of interactions that we've categorized because it helps sort of to understand what people are doing and when they're doing it, what, you know, what types of things they're doing during the buying decision process. And so we've broken that buying decision process into sort of an early education phase and then a solution phase where you're really looking at the solution and then the final selection phase. And what people do during those phases really differ. Um, with executives, as I said, they really are, you know, they're probably doing a lot of scoping and sort of understanding the scope of the problem, how big they want to uh, take, you know, solve it, um, and sort of working internally to make sure that their teams understand what the objectives are and things like that. But they are starting to do a lot of their own research. So they're, you know, they go a lot of places. And I think because executives, you know, they're, they're senior, they're experienced buyers, they probably have a strong peer group. They go and they look for a lot of third-party information. They'll do a lot of internet searches on the internet, um, looking for articles, looking for sort of what's happening in market trends and things like that. They'll also look at your website. Your website needs to be really good. And that's true for all buyers, but they will go and look at that. They'll also, I mean, you know, I think I, think I had thought of executives as being sort of less hands-on, but they're doing some very down and dirty search or research. They might look at sort of user review sites, probably more in the solution section of the buying journey. Um, but they will, you know, they will really try to understand what's going to be solving the problem for them. The risk really is on their shoulders. And depending how significant this is, and especially during something like the pandemic, they can't afford to make a bad purchase decision. So they're going to, they do a lot of due diligence. You talked about all of these folks involved in the process. What has that done to the number of interactions as part of the the purchase process or the the buying process here? Yeah, I'm I'm glad you asked that question because that was actually the biggest aha for us. The biggest finding out of this study this year was the increase in interactions. So we we ask buyers every year how many meaningful interactions they had. Um, throughout this buying process, as Beth mentioned, from the from the beginning sort of education phase all the way through selection and solution. And we saw a huge increase in 2021. So buyers reported the average number of buying interactions at 27 in 2021. Now in 2019, that number was only 17. So that's a huge jump um, in interactions from 17 to 27. So we're really attributing this huge increase in interactions to more due diligence. Um, 
it might be a little bit because people were working from home and might have had a little more time to do some research around their purchases. But what we really believe is that in such a challenging time with changing market conditions and tighter budgets, really all purchases were subject to greater scrutiny and they required more justification. So people did a lot of research. And that's what we see in that interaction number. And that was, um, that was, it, it was the biggest shock we saw in the data. Um, there's lots of changes and we track a lot of trends, but that was probably the biggest one. Um, and that's an, another one, you know, people ask us all the time, is that change permanent? Was it due to the pandemic? Is it going to have that bungee cord effect <laughs> that Monica asked about? And you know, it's it's definitely something we'll be tracking. We're definitely interested in it. And we predict that if there is, a, you know, a dip in those interactions, it will be minimal. Um, we do think that this buying behavior is changing over time. Those number of interactions have been growing a little bit year over year. Nothing to the effect that we saw this year with that jump. But um we do think if you if you think about those extra interactions or that increased level of research, that's sort of a learned behavior for buyers that we think they're going to continue they're going to continue to exhibit because they are going all these places. Um, they're talking to people, they're doing self guided research, they're going to your vendor's website, they're going all over the place to get this information, and they've just learned how to do this. And so we do think that. Uh, that while it might dip, dip a little bit when people get back into normal business routines, we don't think it'll slide all the way back. Hey, Barbara, can you unpack anything on these interactions? It is, you know, is it consistently raised across all phases of the buyer's journey? Is it consistent across all actors or people that are in the buyer's journey? Is it consistent in terms of the way that they interact, either you know, digitally, self-serve, or personally? Like, did everything go up, or is there kind of something you can parse out and, and articulate? Well, interestingly, is that yes, everything did go up. <laughs> it went up across all buying phases. I can't think of one buyer cohort that did not show that increase. Um, and that is one of the most interesting things, Monica, is one might assume that it was those self-guided interactions that were the ones that went up when, when we talk about, you know, self-guided versus sort of human interactions when we're talking to each other. But it really wasn't. I mean, they told us that we saw a slight increase in what we call non-human interactions, but not dramatic. Um, so they were doing, they were talking to people more. They were searching more on vendors' websites. They were searching more on third-party websites. They were talking to their peers more. Um, we really did see it go up across the board, which in itself was a pretty interesting finding for us. So, Barbara, you you had mentioned you know types of interactions, non-human interactions, as an example. So, can we maybe unpack when we when we're talking about interactions? what are they and how marketers maybe can think about them in an, in an organized way? Yeah, absolutely. So we've talked a lot about the fact that buyers go everywhere for information. There's lots of channels. So we analyze those buyers interactions um, using what we call the buyer interaction model. And if you want to visualize it, it's a standard two by two model and it maps the type of interactions um, by personal and self-guided on one 
access on one axis. So think about self-guided interactions as what we sometimes call those non-human interactions. You're just out there searching on the internet or you're going to some specific website to look at it. Whereas personal interactions are conversations, whether they're in person or virtual or however we do that, right? Those are still personal interactions that we can have with a variety of people. So that's one axis on this two by two model. The other axis is how much control does the vendor have over that information? So again, for example, a vendor controls all the information on their own website. So they have a lot of control there. But when a buyer goes out to maybe a third-party review site, the vendor doesn't control all that inf- any of that information really, and hopefully they can influence it, but they don't control that. So organizations need to consider, you've got these four quadrants that result between you know, personal and self-guided information and information you can control and information that you can only influence. And we know that buyers are going into all those quadrants. They're going to your site, they're going to other sites. They're talking to people, they're doing a lot of research on their own. And so thinking about those quadrants is how we help clients think about, okay, how am I going to create a complete and integrated campaign that touches all the points of that buyer's journey. So that starts with thought leadership in media and demand programs, and also really thinking about those human interactions as well and making sure that you're enabling all your teams to do those well. Hey, Barbara, earlier you talked about, um, you know, the across the different uh, actors in the purchase journey and the difference that you're seeing, like as you look at industries or purchases, are you finding this interaction model that as you look at different cohorts, you know, it's, it's large financial services, they'll pattern out one way, but another cohort will pattern out a completely different way. Or do you find that there are, you know, there's a lot of similarity. So we do see some differences, and that's why it's important that we do this analysis by all the different cohorts. Um, I would say that overall, we saw the influence, the importance of all those quadrants go up. So that's that's a big takeaway. But when you do start looking at different personas or different industries, you will see, for instance, um, and Beth, correct me if I'm wrong here, but we saw, for instance, with um, CXOs what we call those orchestrated interactions, which means they're personal interactions, conversations, but they're with people probably other than your own sales reps. They're with people like analysts and journalists and their peers and some of the um, conversations they might have in industry forums. Those types of um, personal interactions that they have that the vendor can only influence, they can't control 100%, those were among the most important for C-suite executives, more so than we saw for a lot of other buyers. Um, So that's just one example of where you do see some of those quadrants pop for different cohorts. Seems like it'd be important information as a marketeer to know that. (laughs) Absolutely. Can you think of any other interesting ones, Beth? Yeah. So I think, so those were called influenced interactions when it's third party um, that you you just, you only can influence, and if if you're if they're meeting with 
people from your own organization, we call them um, orchestrated because you can sort of enable them. Um, but yeah, and we just did one on finance professionals and finance professionals are kind of different from uh, executives in general in that they like having more one-on-one -on -one or not or not necessarily one-on-one, -on -one, but personal meetings with the vendor. So with different reps from the vendor, they're kind of, I mean, in a, in a little bit, I would call it a little bit old school. They're, they probably are a little bit more old school than some of the other functions we've seen. So they're, they want to have that, um, you know, two-way conversation with people from the company. Um, executives, I do believe are pretty savvy and they, they absolutely want to talk to those vendors as well, but then they're going to go talk to all these third-party players and make sure that they get cooperation from for all that. So what is a marketer to do? Because you had just, you know, mentioned like to, you know, finance and C-suite, all of these folks make up a buying group, right? So how do you navigate the layeredness here? So one of the first things that we talk about is first to understand that buying scenario that you're selling into, like, is this a small deal that there's just going to be a couple people involved? And if so, you just, you know, you're going to focus on that decision maker. Um, if it's a mid-level deal, um, there's probably a handful of people involved and you need to sort of figure out who's the decision maker, how involved are they and how much are they delegating to a champion or something to sort of run with that. So when you get to those consensus scenarios, though, you usually will have some sort of ratifier involved. So you might have to get that uh, procurement or finance person involved. But the consensus, there's a lot of IT people. So there's probably someone from IT that you're going to have to pay attention to and a business person who's sort of, unless it's an IT sponsored purchase, there might be a business person. So you want to figure out, like, what does the buying group look like? And then in the committee scenarios, there's so many people, there could be a lot of executives, a lot of IT, and a lot of sort of ratifiers and a lot of influencers. It could be cutting across business units, it could be cutting across functions. So there might be representatives from all those different areas. So that is the most challenging. And that's where you want to figure out who's really making the decision, who's got that decision-making authority. And it might be sort of a, you know, that executive committee. But if that's the case, Who's going to be the key influencer if it is a technology purchase? And by the way, when you get into committee scenarios, they are much more often technology purchases than any other purchases. So there's going to be some senior IT folks in there and they will they will carry a lot of weight. So you need to sort of focus on them, but figure out. So is it the CEO or is it sort of a mishmash of some senior Leader. Sometimes it's the a business unit head who's really driving for that purchase and sort of leading that purchase process. But that's that's what you need to figure out. It very much depends on what your target market is and what your offering is. So this is something that we can sort of give you advice about, but we can't tell you exactly what to do just because it is going to be so dependent on what exactly you're you're trying to sell into that market. Right. And then I would I would add once you've identified those those personas that you're going to prioritize because they're the the most important in that buyer group, you want to map what their buyer journey looks like. And and when we work with clients thinking about buyer journeys, they often they think about okay, this is the information they want, so we'll put it on our website here, and here's where we'll send in a sales rep which is important. But again, thinking about those four quadrants we talked about in that buyer interaction model, 
you really need to be thinking about all the places that your buyers are going. So once you've chosen those most important personas, map that out in their journey and make sure that you're you're comprehending and you're preparing all your teams that they want to talk to people other than just a sales rep. And they're going to talk to a lot of influencers and go to third-party sites. And you need to be aware of those and make sure that your uh, your messaging is showing up there as well and influencing those channels um, because it's a lot more than just what you put on your website. Although that's got to be great. <laughs> it's a lot more than, than what you put on your website and just their conversations with your sales reps. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. It was great to be here. Yes, thank you for having us, Monica and Jen. We enjoyed it very much. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.